Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I am pleased to be joined all the way from New Zealand um, by Rory Peter. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Peter. It's good to be here. It's wonderful that uh, we can have this technology. So from my afternoon to my tomorrow morning, essentially. Um, it's always difficult for me to make the transition. I have to Google it and what's the, okay, thank you. Um, so could you tell us just a little bit about where you were born, how you got interested in agriculture in general? Sure. So I grew up in Scotland. My childhood was in Scotland, in a rural area of the West Highlands. And although we weren't a farming family, we lived uh, surrounded by farms in a farming community. And so from an early age, I, my friends were on farms and I was hanging around with them. And I started working on farms as a sort of early teenager and really never wanted to do anything else. So I first worked as a shepherd and a herd boy. Um, and when I finished school, I decided to study agriculture and really get involved in it um, as a career. And uh, went as part of my education, I, I managed to do something called a sandwich course, which meant that I could do a year of practical in New Zealand. Then I studied back in Scotland and then another year of practical in Australia and then another year back in Scotland. So I, I got a good exposure early on to uh, quite varied livestock systems. I would say it's all been livestock really mm. from the beginning. And that's probably just because of where I grew up. It's all, all livestock farming in the west of Scotland. Well, depending on the location in Australia, it could be quite different than what you grew up in in Scotland. Yeah, totally different. So I went from the west of Scotland where we have a rainfall of somewhere between two and three meters per year. So that's up to nine feet, I guess, per year, a lot of inches anyway, to uh, the central Australian desert where uh, rather than talking about head per acre, you were talking about uh, square kilometers per head. <laughs> it was quite a big difference, but uh, you know, it, it gave me a, a very broad interest in livestock systems and, and a desire to really find out more about them all over the world. Mm. Mm. And so tropical agriculture, I guess, how did that piece come in for your, and, and your, your school was where in Scotland? In Edinburgh. In, in. Yeah. And then, so I, I got into the tropical side because of Australia. So having spent a year in the Northern Territory, which is both uh, very arid in the central desert, but up in the north, it's, it's tropical and you have seasonal rainfall and the production system there is really around well, very large acreages, but relatively high production compared to that central desert. And that uh, that appealed to me. And so I decided 
that that's something I wanted to do more of. And I went to the University of Edinburgh to do a master's degree on tropical animal production and health, because I thought that would sort of add to what I already had studied, you know, just on, on agriculture. And I expected that that was going to take me into production uh, somewhere else in the world. And indeed, I, I looked at um, jobs in places like Venezuela and so on. When I was a young guy, that was still a, a major cattle producer, not so much anymore. Um, but kind of got diverted at the last moment into, into development work. So more in um, you know, low-income countries. And I was offered a job um, by the British government in their development program in India. So that was a little bit of a change from straightforward production agriculture, suddenly looking at um, farming systems in, in lower income countries, which, as you can imagine, are, are very different to what I've been experiencing on, on commercial ranches. Mm. And uh, India was a real eye opener to me. Um, you know, very, very different, uh, densely populated country with a uh, huge reliance on, um, on livestock. And even today, India has got the, the largest bovine herd in the world. Um, a lot of them are buffalo, but huge numbers of cows as well. Uh, around 300 million bovines in India. So that was an interesting place where I could put some of my education to work, but also learned a huge amount about uh, development and uh, low-income economy. Mm. And so would that include questions of infrastructure or market or what, what, what does uh, development look like, agricultural development look like in a place like India or Southern Africa, I think, where you've done some other work? Yeah, I've, I've worked uh, in Southern Africa as well. The, the, the differences are really in access to resources and Infrastructure always plays a part in that, but it's not just infrastructure. There are so many parts of it. There's education. Um, there's just the, the ability to derive an income from whatever it is that you're doing. In India, particularly, very small agricultural holdings. I mean, fragmentation over, over centuries, I guess. So that you're looking at uh, smallholder farmers who are basically uh, subsisting from an acre or two acres. And this was in a relatively dry part of India. This was in um, Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh and Gujarat. So that, that's not a high rainfall area of India. And we were looking at rain-fed farming systems where, you know, dry, dry season rice and uh, mixed with livestock. So just really the fact that you've got a huge number of people still on the land in, in that country compared to, you know, in the U.S. or Europe, where really you're, it's only 2% of the population are involved in any way in agriculture. In India, it's still way higher than that, and, and yeah. Africa as well. I was looking... I was looking at some figures that said in 30 years' time, 70% of the world's population will live in urban areas. Yes, and I think it's already past 50% now. I'm not sure about that, but I seem to recall reading that a year or so ago. And uh, that obviously leads to a major transformation in how food is produced and, and 
how it's sourced by people who are living in those cities. People in cities are not, on the whole, producing any food. And so they're fully reliant on bringing it in from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And without getting too into the details, then you've got nutrient flows from productive areas into the city. And how does that then affect the farming system when you don't have that cycling of nutrients there that once was? Exactly. I mean, India is actually an interesting case in in that sense, because a lot of the cattle and buffalo are in peri-urban areas. So you've got a huge amount of manure being produced on the edges of of cities and conurbations. And of course, there are still large numbers out in the rural areas, but um, there's a lot of cut and carry fodder. And there's a lot of, um, you know, cattle, which are essentially always um, in one location. So they're they're either housed or they're tethered. And the, the fodder is being brought to them rather than grazing systems. So, you know, there are just so many differences to what you'd be used to seeing Mm. in the United States. And that concentration of of nutrients now in in peri-urban areas in India can create problems, of course. Um, Even the disposal of carcasses uh, in India can create problems because people in India do not eat uh, bovine meat. In fact, in most states uh, of India, it's illegal to consume uh, any kind of beef. Um, and so cattle can't be slaughtered. Buffalo can be in some states, but it's all for export, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and then there's still a significant portion of humanity that's burning dirty biofuels for cooking fuel, and dung would be one of those in India, especially. And that creates human health problems that also short circuits the cycling of nutrients. Um, yeah, very much so. I, it's one of my sort of abiding images of, of Indian village and, and town life is seeing people drying these circular pats, you know, of dung for use uh, on fires later. So once it's been dried out, they stack them up, they sell them, and, and people buy it for cooking on. Yeah. Um, so, um, what, let's shift gears and talk about sustainability and, and what that word means to you and then maybe how you got interested and involved in efforts for sustainable beef production and the organizations. Yeah. Well, I came across a nice definition of sustainability the other day i was watching a documentary by david attenborough in which he was talking about uh, food production and in general he was talking about sustainability and he said sustainability it something is sustainable when you can keep doing it indefinitely and and to me that's a, a very succinct and uh, simple definition of sustainability i mean i would add to it that Essentially, when you're when you're looking to produce food sustainably, you need to be cycling the nutrients so that you know that you're not um, damaging the health of the soil, and on a broader level, not damaging the health of the ecosystem because the, it's the ecosystem in the end which produces all the food that we eat. So we need a healthy ecosystem to to produce food. 
So that, in a nutshell, is is how I think of sustainability. But when it comes down to what my my job is, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, we have a fairly lengthy definition of it, which is based on um, some principles and uh, a load of criteria as well, in which we talk about the the areas which are most important. So we talk about having three pillars of sustainability, which are the, the social, the environmental, and the economic. And then our, our principles cover natural resources. They cover the you know the food safety side and the, the health, uh, food, uh, nutritional side. They cover the human side, so the social angle. And, of course, the economic one, um, the efficiency and the fact that people need to be able to make uh, a good living from it. So uh, we have a fairly, I guess, to, to somebody who's not thought about this a lot, it seems like you have to write a lot to de- define sustainability. But if you don't define it properly, how are you ever going to be able to, to actually reach it? Hmm. Well, I, I'm somewhat concerned in some conversations I'm hearing um, people talk about implementing practices and rewarding their implementations, but saying we can't measure this on an individual farm or field basis. So we're going to assume that if you do what we're recommending, you're going to achieve the goal that we say you're going to get, therefore. And that just makes me nervous. I'm, 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 I'm more interested in what are objective measures and different operators, managers, interests in different parts of the world are going to have different approaches. But if we can understand what we're driving toward, then if we can demonstrate that we're making progress, that's great. It's not the process, it's the results. Uh, Absolutely. And I I agree with you 100% there. I always think of a producer I worked with several years ago you used to tell me that um, there's no such thing as best practice. Uh, there's such a thing as appropriate practice. And he always gave me the example of his farm. He said, look, I, I manage that southern part of my farm differently from this part. And I manage that paddock over there differently again because I've got different soil there. I've got different slope there. And I've got uh, you know other factors here. And you have to manage each part of the farm appropriately. You can't assume that just by adopting a blanket practice everywhere, you're going to get the same result. That that can't be true. So you are the executive director of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. You've been involved in that for, I hate to say this, a decade, right? I'm sorry. (laughs) Time has a way of passing. Um, But that global roundtable is made up or of, of well, there's stakeholders in it, but part of that, there's also regional groups, correct? Right. Yeah. We have 12... um national or regional roundtables and i say national or regional most of them are just one country so you have canada us um, mexico brazil they have their own roundtable but then southern africa we have uh, a roundtable there which covers uh, at the moment 
five countries in that region, but potential, has the potential to cover more countries in the region. And Europe, again, uh, at the moment, covering six countries in Europe, but uh, ultimately could cover, uh, you know, 26 countries in Europe. Mm. And I lost count, but uh, Australia or New Zealand, is there? So, yes, in New Zealand has a roundtable. Australia has something called the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework, and that's also a member of GRSB in the roundtable constituency. Mm. Uh, we have a total of 12 roundtables that are all members of GRSB, and that includes uh, basically 24 countries. And that's alongside all of the companies and NGOs and academics um, and, and banks and so on that are also members. So together, we, we cover a fairly large um, proportion of the beef supply chains, especially with processes. We have a large representation of processes. So the big companies like Cargill, Tyson, JBS, Marfrig, uh, they're all members of GRSB. And that, that means that in terms of global beef trade, we cover quite a significant percentage. So from a global perspective, what are the countries that have, I mean, we're American here, uh, so we like to think that, you know, we're big in, in cattle, and we are, but there are countries that have more. Um, what, what are some of the, you mentioned India, uh, I think our numbers are somewhere in the 90 million range and you said theirs are 300. Yeah. Um, um, what are, what are some of the other countries? Yeah, you're right. Um, us is about 94 million. So that's about 9% of the global herd is in the U S and that includes both, uh, your beef herd and your dairy herd. And obviously most, you know, dairy animals, the offspring, certainly the male offspring, uh, predominantly go into the beef herd. Uh, a lot of the females uh, do, and at the end of the life they do anyway. So th those two industries are, are intimately linked. You can't really separate them. So Brazil would be another really big one. They have about 244 million cattle, predominantly beef cattle in Brazil. So that's 25% of the, the global herd is in Brazil. And as you already pointed out, India with 30%. Uh, China has a similar number to the U.S. But what I find quite interesting about all of those countries, so if you, if you compare the U.S. with 9% of the herd producing around just over 20% of the world's beef. So that tells you something about the uh, efficiency and the sort of output orientation of the, of the U.S. industry. China, with a very similar size of herd, is producing about 11% of the global beef, so ab about half of what the U.S. is doing. Brazil, with 25% uh, of the herd, is producing about 17%. And to me, the biggest, um, the most interesting one, perhaps, is, is the continent of Africa. So you're talking a lot of countries in Africa, but um, the continent of Africa has about 20% of the, the cattle on the planet. But in terms of their participation in, in the global beef industry, only about 3%. Mm. So you can see there's a massive spread between, you know, herd size and pro production orientation. And, and that reinforces a point that 
several times has come up in other episodes um, that using global figures when talking about individual countries is completely inappropriate in terms of greenhouse gas emissions or environmental footprint of beef production. I mean, um, so in certain portions of Africa, for example, a great deal of um, draft energy. I mean, the the tractors are their cattle um, for lack of a better description. Um, and in many parts of these small uh, mixed farming systems, the fertilizer is the manure. Um, so livestock is intimately related, not necessarily for beef production, but then we count the animals in the beef herd. And, mm. and so um, if it if it takes another year for a calf to reach market, that's that much more environmental impact. If the the idle cow isn't getting pregnant every year, if it, it that is an additional environmental impact. Yeah, correct. And and if you look at Southern Africa as a as a region, you know there are definitely differences between the countries in that region. So um, Namibia, Botswana, South Africa have a have a more production-oriented system in in the commercial farming areas, uh, in the communal areas, not so much. And they they do export. Namibia and Botswana do export, but in the communal areas and the areas where, where they're much more uh, subsistence-related, the cattle are really being kept as an asset and almost as a as a kind of bank account. And that that point may be over emphasize sometimes and, and I, I sometimes think the word idle animal is is an unfortunate mm. um, term because the, the animals are providing services to the family and they're also you know interacting with the environment in which they live so I don't think they're entirely idle but their purpose is not primarily beef production and there's a big difference between having a herd of cattle uh, from which you occasionally sell one to pay school fees than there is from uh, deliberately wanting a calf every year uh, from all of the cows so that you can um, market them at a certain weight and in a certain condition. It's just a, it's a world apart. And when we consider all cattle to be the same, I think we're making a big mistake where we're ignoring so many of the purposes that people keep cattle for. Mm -hmm. Good point. Um, had not considered that. Um, is there a disease in sub-Saharan Africa that affects cattle that impacts the development of that cattle industry? Did, am I I'm vaguely remembering something? Sure. So, I mean, foot and mouth disease is endemic in many countries around the, the globe and in many low-income countries in particular. Um, so foot and mouth disease there are a number of strains of, and in Africa, some of those strains are also endemic in the wild ungulate population. So for example, buffalo um, in Botswana and other you know, surrounding countries where there is a lot of game, buffalo and some other um, native species do carry foot and mouth disease. And foot and mouth disease is essentially um, 
a barrier to, to trade because countries that don't have foot and mouth disease will not want any cattle which could possibly have been exposed to foot and mouth disease. There's a significant difference between Africa and South America in that Latin America is allowed to market beef to the rest of the world uh, with vaccination. Whereas because of the presence of a number of strains of foot and mouth disease in Africa and the endemicity of those strains, African countries are not allowed, or, or at least no other countries currently accept exports from those African countries with vaccination. They all require no vaccination. And the reason is they want to be able to tell if there are antibodies, then the disease must have been present. It wasn't a question of vaccination. So that has, is a huge challenge to Africa in terms of uh, exporting beef. But to be honest, given the growing population of, of the continent of Africa, they probably will need to focus their efforts uh, on providing food for Africa rather than exporting it. And at the moment, as I said, the herd in Africa, is, is, and particularly southern Africa, is not very productive. And as the population grows and there's an increasing demand uh, for high-quality protein, there is presumably going to have to be a shift from the current system towards a more uh, commercial and a more production-oriented system. Uh, I have only begun to understand or learn, let's leave it that way, learn, about farming systems in other parts of the world um, and then marketing channels are far down the list um, in my understanding so um, in w when I imagine you know the figures are something like 45 percent of humanity consumes less than a thousand kilowatt hours of electricity a year, which is, you know, a large North American refrigerator equivalent. Um, how do animal source foods, beef particular, we could just, how do they get marketed? How do they go from farm to consumer? What do those channels look like in, for most of the people living in the world today? Yeah, that's a good question because it's it's very different from what we're used to. And of course, many of the people listening to this, I, I would imagine most of the people listening to this are used to simply going to a supermarket and buying all of the food that they need for the week or for however long. And of course, that's not the way most of the world lives, even today. Um, and there are some really interesting developments in terms of how things are marketed in, in different countries. I think China is a fascinating one because that country has uh, evolved so quickly. It's gone from being a relatively uh, low-income country to you know, high levels of industrialization quite quickly. Their channels are, are different from what you'd be used to in the U.S., and one of the things that really struck me uh, in a seminar that I was listening to about a year ago was hearing the percentage of meat, and particularly beef, because beef is still a, quite a prestige, you know, high-value product in, in China. 
the majority of it is is currently being sold online. People are not going to um, supermarkets to buy it. They're not buying it in wet markets. They might buy other meats. And pork has always been the traditional mainstay of the of the animal protein in China. But beef was being marketed heavily online, mm. and that's that's fascinating. Whereas in Africa, completely different. And and of course, to say Africa is a huge generalization, but there are you know the majority of people who live on that continent are still buying their food in in markets uh, or they're producing their own food and slaughtering is uh, is much more likely to be local um and ad hoc rather than something that you you go and buy in a supermarket so there are abattoirs throughout uh, throughout african countries and uh Meat is available in supermarkets, but there's still a large number of people who are doing these things themselves and who are buying it uh, in a local market. Um, before I forget again, um, if someone were interested in learning about global efforts in sustainable research or research into sustainable beef systems, uh, just you know, not necessarily technical, although that would be of interest to some as well, but just introductory material, general public kind of stuff. Where would you suggest people go? Well, if it was to be global material, um, people can certainly approach the Global Roundtable. We've got, as I said, connections all around the world, so we can introduce uh, people to information from from around the world we have some information on our own website which is grsbeef.org um, and i would also recommend in, in the u.s for example the the clear center at uc davis puts out a lot of very in, you know interesting information you can follow them on twitter and probably the best known person working at uc davis there is is dr frank mitlerner uh, who's done a lot of analysis, especially in terms of the greenhouse gas balance of the U.S. Uh, livestock industry. But we have connections around the, the globe who are doing similar work in, in every country. So here in New Zealand, Ag Research is doing a lot of that kind of work in Australia. CSIRO and uh, members of the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework. So th there are lots available. And this year, GRSB is, we've, been spending a large percentage of our time in, in 2020 on developing a communications narrative and a communication strategy. And that is going to be rolled out this year. Uh, so we will become more active in terms of um, posting information and uh, links to the work of our members uh, through social media and on our website. Excellent. We also run a, a global conference on sustainable beef. Uh, every second year. Now, last year was a, an exception because of the global pandemic. So this year we're going to be running uh, an online version of our global conference in April, uh, where we'll be talking about um, the goals that we've been developing as a as a global roundtable, which are all of industry goals. And uh, we'd be happy to have people participate in that conference. We'll be putting information out about that quite soon uh, through social media. Excellent. Um, in a conversation with Frank Mitlerner and, and Dr. Place and others, 
I get the impression that the beef industry has done a lot of research to look at data from itself. Um, and then it kind of gets compared to data regarding other industries, which may or may not have done as much work to quantify their own footprints. Is that by your experience of, of an accurate perception or close to accurate? Yes, it's, it's a challenging area in any case, because the way we tend to look at um, impact and, and environmental footprints is through life cycle analysis, which is a, you know, a really complex science. If you want to look at the life cycle analysis of the beef value chain or the dairy value chain, there are so many different components to that. You have to think about the feed, you have to think about um, pasture, you have to think about transport uh, of all of the raw materials and the inputs. You need to think about the production of the inputs. It's, it's almost unimaginably complex for somebody who hasn't engaged in these, and, and I'm definitely not an expert in life cycle analysis, but the, the level of detail is, is phenomenal. And comparisons are sometimes made between the entire life cycle of the beef industry and emissions, for example. I mean, this is the classic example was the... the Livestock's Long Shadow, which was a publication by FAO, where the life cycle of livestock industries was compared to the tailpipe emissions from transportation. And, and that's wrong for a number of reasons. For a start, transportation, some of that is involved in the beef industry. So a component of what you're talking about, or in the livestock in general, some of what you're talking about within livestock is also transport. But secondly, tailpipe emissions are only a very small part of the total emissions of, of transport. And nobody has done an entire transportation life cycle analysis because it would be an enormously complex and far-reaching job. You'd have to be looking at the production of every single component that makes up transportation infrastructure, including the roads, the railways, the runways, the airports, etc., plus all of the vehicles, plus all of the tailpipe emissions, you know, it, it would just be enormous. And uh, it hasn't been done. And therefore, you cannot compare livestock industries with transport on a like-for-like -like basis. And then we could also, at some point, recognize that with much of the livestock, well, agriculture, agriculture, forestry, land use, we're dealing with the only sector which currently sequesters significant amounts of carbon in the soil. Um, and some of the information is really quite remarkable when you start looking at it. You know, it's sort of, it's in the same report everybody looks at, but they never talk about it. Um, so, and, and in the case of cattle, one of the biggest, um, one of the one of the things that comes up is we're we're talking about what do they call it biogenic carbon we're recycling fixed carbon dioxide through plant matter through the cow back out as methane and then it gets oxidized back so that represents 
a flow as opposed to a stock of increasing CO2 content in the atmosphere, um, as opposed to something that's burning significant amounts of fossil fuel, which represents an increase. And we talk about them as if they're equivalent, or we make comparisons between the two without taking that into account. And then as somebody once reminded me recently, and, and agriculture is essential. We, we have to eat. Right. You, you don't have to fly around the world as you discovered this year. Um. True. Yeah, it's, it's a challenging thing to get across to people. But I, I suppose the, the most, um, the simplest way to think about you know, that biogenic cycle compared to, to fossil fuels is, you know, all fossil fuels ultimately were made from living organisms. But it took, you know, literally millions, and in most cases, tens of millions of years to produce that fossil fuel. And this grass that, that is turning into beef in the process of one year Imagine what, how much grass would be required to make, you know, it's not literally made from grass, but if, imagine how much material you would need accumulated over a million years to produce that one piece of coal or that one pint of oil. It's, it's a huge amount of material. And when you're comparing the biogenic cycle with a fossil, you, you're just not looking at the same thing at all. And the, the, the timescales are, for most people, well, I'd say all of us, really unimaginable. We can't imagine what a million years is like, but we know that that's how long it took to produce uh, oil and coal. Mm -hmm. Another aspect is the typically land use change relating to beef is the conversion of forest into pasture. That's in people's minds. And certainly in some countries, it's my understanding that a significant amount of that is occurring as a stage in the development of that land from forestry to cropland, that, that a significant amount of that is not being, you know, the goal is not to produce pasture land. The, the goal is ultimately to produce soybeans in regions of Brazil. They go through a period of time where they're grazing cattle in them, yet it's all attributed to cattle um, in the calculations. Yeah, and it's actually interesting to see how things have evolved in Brazil. So although their herd has continued to grow, the, the rate of growth of the herd has been slowing down and the actual land take, so the total amount of land occupied by the beef herd has contracted. Now that's not all good because some of the land that has been um, abandoned is actually severely degraded. So that obviously wasn't being managed well. But there is also a story there about intensification. The Brazilian beef industry has been able to produce more beef using less land. So clearly they are on a path towards um, producing more with less, which ultimately is, is what we'd want for, you know, from a sustainability perspective. Um, there is still, of course, the, the frontier. And my uh, question about this is always, why do we expect a Brazilian producer, because it is, a, it is a Brazilian producer who owns a plot of land. It's his private or their private land. 
And yet, the preservation of forest is considered to be a global public good. So everybody agrees that we need to preserve uh, the Amazon and other biomes uh, because the biodiversity is very important. They play a very important role in the hydrological cycle. We need to preserve them. So everybody agrees that's what we need. It's a global public good. We all benefit. And yet we expect that Brazilian producer to pay for it. Mm. Mm. So we're making it a private cost to that producer. If we all agree that we need to preserve biomes, entire ecosystems, shouldn't we all be paying for it? Mm. And at the moment, there isn't a mechanism to do that. We, we need, if, if we all agree that it's important to do something, then we should probably all agree that we need to pay for it. And then one could ask, okay, so this biome is important. What about this one? What about the grasslands that have essentially been converted largely to agricultural crop production? Um, are, are, were, are they not important? Why, why one? Why, why not the other? Um, you know, having Europeans lecture Brazilians about deforestation a century after they completed the deforestation of their continent. I mean, it, 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 it gets tricky, some of these conversations, when you can take a step back and, and try to look at it from several points of view. Yeah, it definitely is tricky. And, and I would say the conversion of grasslands is equally important um, for a number of reasons. But when you convert a grassland, you also release massive amounts of carbon from the soil and doesn't really matter what system you put in place once you've lost that native grassland you've lost the carbon and you're never really going to get it back up to that same level you might through uh grazing tame pastures bring it back up to a, a high level but it's unlikely to to match for example a prairie once you've once you've plowed up a prairie in north america you are very unlikely to get back to where you started in terms of carbon in the soil. And as you say, it's, it's a, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy in um, wealthy countries telling those who are on, you know, on a growing economic uh, trajectory that they need to stop doing something. Uh, I think we all need to recognize that uh, if we believe things are worth preserving for the good of all of humanity, then we all need to be paying to do that. And, and certainly one of the things that's been impressing me as I've begun to interact with various um, people such as yourself working in this space is what does it actually look like on the ground in these other parts of the world? Um, and what impacts um, well, it isn't specifically the the roundtable that I heard this, but I heard described the results of interventions where a pregnant mother gets one egg a day and they can measure a scholastic performance difference in her child some years later. I mean, it's it, it, these are things that we can do. This is not 
literally rocket science, although I'll be talking to a rocket scientist tomorrow, but um, it, it it's doable. We can, the, these are the sorts of things that I think we ought to be finding ways to get done. Um, and often it comes in the face of grandiose utopian kinds of things that typically come from the high income countries and want to get inflicted on everyone. Um, we, what, so you've, you've had a chance to work with farmers of all kinds in all places. And yeah, there's differences, but I think there's also, are there any similarities that you've noticed yep. as you've done this? I would say in general, uh, farmers want to be able to pass on the land that they produce food from in a better state than they inherited it or bought it. And, you know, so many farming families are multi-generational. Of course, there are, there are people who come into farming or get out of farming, but many, many farming families are multi-generational and they care very deeply about the land. Um, also, I would say about the, about the biodiversity, about the, you know, the life on the farm. So people are not just producing food. They're also part, you know, they're surrounded by and intricately linked to nature. And most farmers care deeply about nature. Um, I think what you see is as farming heads down a more uh, commoditized route, you may see that linkage to nature um, decreasing to some extent. But even on you know, commodity, big, you know, large scale commodity farms, people who are linked to the land usually care about it. And on family farms, I would say all of them care about it because, you know, it's, it's what they know. It's how they grew up. It's what they see every day and they want it to, to look good. They want it to look healthy and they want to know that they're doing the right thing. Uh, the, the great news, I guess, is that with, um, a resurgence in interest in natural systems and the fact that soil carbon uh, can be beneficial in so many ways is people are realizing that it, it's not just good for the land, it's not just good for uh, drawing carbon out of the air, but it's also good for their bottom line. It's something that will, will help them um, be more productive or more profitable. And that's, uh, that's good news for everybody, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm impressed with the idea of walking across land that your grandfather walked across. Um, and again, that, that sense of continuity and passing things on, although there's also a great tradition of um, children leaving the farm for better economic opportunity somewhere or education or what have you. I mean, so while sometimes I feel nostalgic, nostalgic, no, that's not the word, Pete. Um, <laughs> when I see these old barns that are decaying that you can see across parts of rural America, there's, there's a pang there. It's like, yeah, that was somebody's, you know, sweat and, and toil and, and it's come to this. 
Um, and at the same time, I have to realize that was for that time and that place. And agriculture and markets have changed. And maybe, again, the family moved on. Um, you know, so subsistence agriculture is not a um, aspirational goal for humanity. Um, and as we give educational opportunities, as we give access to information, we shouldn't expect people to gain all that and say, yeah, I just want to sit here in this subsistence level, right? The, the bear, the, the knife edge of survival and poverty. Um, so sometimes I think people have a romantic idea about this, the little red barn syndrome, I've heard it uh, put. Um, and, and we really need to maybe step back and, and take a bigger look at it from the people's perspective that are involved in it, the, the reality. Yeah, of course. And, and the fact is, with, uh, what was the figure you said, 70% of the population ending up in cities, um, there's no way that subsistence farming is, is going to feed the world. Um, and on the other hand, I would also say that doesn't mean we need to throw out everything that's natural right. and good in a system we need to we need to be able to understand which parts of those natural interactions are really required to continue producing enough food for the world while recognizing that most people aren't involved in food production um, and also recognize that most land is not suitable for producing human edible crops most land around about two-thirds of it depends on who you go to for your figures but around about two-thirds of the land we use to produce food is growing grass and it's growing browse it's growing fodder it's not growing something uh, that you can eat directly as a human so we we will continue to use that land to produce animals uh, on and animals livestock predict play a huge role in integrating with crop production systems. You were talking earlier on about the, the value of manure as a fertilizer. It's still the fertilizer that you need because, of course, we have synthetic fertilizers today, but they don't add, they don't put the carbon back into the soil. They're not cycling the carbon in the way that manure does. So we need a combination. We need to, we need to take the best from natural production systems and, and agroecology, as it's called, mm. uh, but also recognize that with a growing population of urban people, um, subsistence farming is not the way forward. And of course, even on that land that does produce human edible crops, livestock is integrated, livestock production is integrated into those by, for example, grazing wheat pasture in the, in the Southern Plains, um, you know, grazing crops in rotation or eating the byproducts or co-products of the human edible plant products as they're harvested and then processed. So, um, again, the, there's, there's this key integration that frequently is, is missed. One last question for you regarding the sustainability. 
and you mentioned the life cycle. So that's basically what it takes from to 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 get uh, an animal that leaves the farmer ranch, and then there's uh, or does that include any finishing processing? Yeah, that that depends. Uh, uh on who has designed the life cycle analysis. But um, so in Europe, you'll have possibly heard of something called the product environmental footprint. And that would take you right up to the point of purchase okay. by a consumer. And LCA, you always have to define when you uh, establish an LCA uh, to what point it is. So some LCAs will be farm gate and some will be uh, to further processing. It, it, it has to be stated when you're talking about it because it's not clear just from the word LCA what that includes. Perfect. Um, you and I have had conversations about um, looking forward to the day when the assumptions that are still current in much public health advice can at least be examined from what I would argue is a more informed perspective and say, okay, you you want to attribute so much of chronic disease to eating so much red meat, I would like to attribute a reduction in chronic disease from eating red meat and less of the plant source foods. And what would that mean as far as environmental footprint. I don't believe the health in care industry, the pharmaceutical industry has done as good a job at looking at its environmental footprint as the beef industry has at looking at its. Uh, that's not something I have a huge amount of insight into, but I have read anecdotally that uh, the, the impact of the health industry is, is enormous. Now, I, I can't go into details because I said it was just something that I read as an anecdote, but definitely worth looking at. And with regard to what you're talking about, the, the health impact of a whole diet and you know where to apportion blame, if you like, for, for health issues, I think there's some, there is some good recent information. I'm sure you will have covered this in other podcasts, but I think um, for people who are looking into that, uh, it would be worth reading um, The Big Fat Surprise and uh, also Sacred Cow. There's a movie of Sacred Cow by Diana Rogers and a book as well. Both excellent uh, source materials for looking into the, the sort of intersection between health and uh, sustainability of, of eating animal protein and fat. Yeah. And... and I, I would like to move us past just talking about protein from animal source foods. I I understand how we got here, but I, I think that we need to acknowledge all the nutrition, um, the essential nutrients that only get provided in animal source food, as well as those that are best sourced from animal source food and their ability to improve lower quality cereal-based diets, for example, around the world. So, right. um, but that's a soapbox that I'll, I'll climb up on for another day, thank you. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. You've been very generous um, with your Tuesday. Now now it's past lunch there, isn't it? Well, it's mid, yeah, past midday anyway. 
Okay. Oh, what's the midday meal in New Zealand called? Uh, it is lunch, but I guess I would probably eat it at one o'clock anyway, so that's fine. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I, 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 if you have any questions you'd like to ask me, it would be only fair to, to give you the opportunity. Well, maybe it's not a, a direct question, but a, a request um, from people listening in is to um, you know, bring these discussions about the intersect between nutrition, uh, where I think most of your audience may be, and the sustainability of production systems together. Because uh, we have spent a lot of time in the roundtables talking about production systems and LCAs and all of those kind of things. But we have spent less time talking about nutrition and the importance of um, a good balance of all types of food in a diet. So uh, as you rightly said just now, a diet is not composed of proteins and fats and vitamins. It's composed of whole foods. And I would really like to bring the discussion about the value of food and different food types in a diet to the sustainability discussion because it, it's something that hasn't always been there. And I think we need to to bring those two things together. Perfect. I'm looking forward to the announcement that you mentioned coming out. Um, and I encourage listeners to um, do exactly what you said and, and get involved. Um, I think that there are some opportunities coming up for us to foster that kind of a conversation and discussion. So uh, great point. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time. Thanks.